Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by... Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light, Who Do You Become When the World Falls Away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash the light. Appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com. You're listening to episode 169 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Paul Amadeus Dinoch, the man who saw the future. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today, as always, is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode. We're going to have your feedback, including some fan art and your responses to our episode on the government UFO report. So be sure to stay around to the end for that. But first, in 1973, the Greek law professor and government official Georgios Papakatsis published a remarkable book. It was the diary of a man he had known in his youth. The man's name was Paul Amadeus Dinoch, and he was a language teacher from Switzerland. But Dinoch recorded some very unusual experiences in his diary. He reported that he had fallen into a coma and woken up in the body of another man in the year 3906. He was shocked, and he struggled to deal with the world of the future. He also learned about the events that led up to that future and the diary recorded events that later came true. So who was Paul Amadeus Dinach? What did he report? And what did he say lies ahead of us? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, let's start from the top. Who was Paul Amadeus Dinach? Reportedly, he was born in 1886 or 1887, and he seems to have died in the first half of 1924 at the age of 37. He was from Switzerland. His father was a German-speaking Swiss citizen, and his mother was an Austrian from Salzburg. Paul was born in a suburb of Zurich, Switzerland, and he grew up in that general area. He studied history and classical philology. Philology has a few different meanings, but it deals with the study of language. As a classical philologist, Paul would have been familiar with Greek, Latin, and possibly Sanskrit. He apparently had a job employing his historical and linguistic skills, but he had to quit due to an illness as his health was not good. He was very happy for the first 21 years of his life, and in 1907, he was very much in love with a young woman named Anna. Anna loved him too, but her parents pressured her into marrying another older man, and it broke both her and Paul's hearts. Two years later, Anna became seriously ill and died, though Paul got to see her a few days before she passed. These events led him to experience a depression that lasted for years. 
When World War I broke out in 1914, he was 28, but Switzerland was neutral during the war, so he didn't have to fight. And so what was the first odd thing that happened to Paul? On January 17, 1917, at 8.40 in the morning, Paul woke up and was surprised to see his mother at his bedside crying tears of joy. There was also a doctor there, and the doctor told him that he'd been asleep for two weeks due to a kind of nervous lethargy, and that's not implausible. Between 1915 and 1926, there was a pandemic in Europe of a disease that caused a brain inflammation known as encephalitis lethargica. It had appeared in Vienna, Austria, and other cities in the area in the winter of 1916, just a few months earlier. And over the next three years, it went worldwide. So the Spanish flu wasn't the only pandemic in this period. Bad cases of encephalitis lethargica could cause you to fall into a coma, and Paul apparently was one of its first victims. Like the National Hotel disease that we talked about in episode 124, people would initially seem to recover from encephalitis lethargica but the disease would boomerang back on them later, causing various neurological and psychiatric problems. These could include symptoms like Parkinson's disease, and they could lead to disability and death. Paul recovered from his initial bout of encephalitis lethargica over the next few months. And how did Paul deal with the unfortunate things that had happened to him? Well, World War I ended in November of 1918, shortly after the Spanish flu pandemic broke out. And in December of 1918, Paul decided to start writing a diary to process his feelings about Anna, his illness, and what was going on in his life. He records that in February of 1919, he started going to his priest, Father Jacob, for counseling. And Father Jacob was a very learned man and was helpful to him. Before she died, Anna had told him that she would be close to him after she died, but he had never experienced a sign of her presence. Father Jacob told him that he should have faith, that he shouldn't expect to receive a special sign from Anna, but that he needed to move on with his life, and he might be ignoring subtle signs that actually were being given to him. That night, Paul spent a lot of time in prayer and was finally able to cry about the loss of Anna, and he thought that this gift of tears may have been the sign from her that he was looking for. Paul then started to get on with his life, but not entirely. In 1921, he was still living with his mother, despite the fact he was then about 35 years old, though that may have been because his mother had become sick and he was taking care of her. I'm not sure on that. He also was still having a lot of thoughts about Anna and would revisit places that they had gone together when she was alive. And what was the next weird thing that ha happened to him? One night in May of 1921, he started to come down with a fever and his eyes hurt when he blinked. He wanted to get out of bed and moisten a towel to put on his forehead but he was too tired and lethargic for that, so he just laid there until he fell asleep. He woke up periodically, still in the grip of the fever, and at some point he perceived men and women standing around him, and he thought he'd been moved into a hospital in the city. But then he started to get other impressions. Here's how he describes them. Why are they dressed like that, I wondered. The setting around me looked completely different and unfamiliar compared to what I was used to. 
No, I thought to myself, it can't be a hospital. I blinked and caught glimpses of the countryside, the sky, shades of blue and green blended together, and a pink light reflecting on the crystal walls, so bright and so beautiful. I also recall breathing the scented spring air and sometimes a celestial melody wafting to my weary ears. It resembled a prayer sung by children's voices. I could distinguish the sound of the harp. I had never heard anything more melodic and more extraordinary in my life, and I wished it would never stop. And then I wondered, am I dead? But if I was, why would I feel ill and feverish? So at first he thought he was dead, but then he realized he was still physically ill. And did he recover from his illness? Gradually he got better, and one morning he felt strong enough to get out of bed, so he did, and he took a look at himself in the mirror. What he saw shocked him to his core. It was not his own face that he saw, but a complete stranger looking back at him. He thought he had lost his mind, and he cried out for help and fainted. When he came to, there were two strangely dressed doctors attending him, and he started babbling, asking what was happening to him, where he was, and had he gone mad. But they didn't seem to understand him at all, at least not at first. As they spoke to each other, he realized he couldn't understand their language, and he concluded that he was in a foreign hospital for some reason— explaining the strange clothing that the foreign doctors were wearing and the foreign language they were speaking. As a philologist, he started trying to identify what language that was, and he recognized some words had Anglo-Saxon roots, but they weren't speaking English because there was a mix of words that sounded Scandinavian as well. It was like a hybrid of English and the Scandinavian languages, and he didn't speak it. Later, Paul would characterize it as, quote, a corrupted mixture of Danish and American, close quote, meaning, of course, distinctly American English. Fortunately, English, Danish, Swedish, and Norwegian are all Germanic languages, and he was a native German speaker as well as a philologist. So by using words that these languages have in common, Paul was able to establish a rudimentary form of communication with his doctors. Eventually, they figured out that he was speaking to them in German, and they responded with a kind of broken German. But it was broken in a weird way. It was broken, weird German that wasn't pronounced like any German dialect he was familiar with. The first sentence, one of them said that he actually understood was, Andreas Northam, don't you recognize me anymore? And who is Andreas Northam? Paul didn't know, but over the next two weeks, he continued to recover. He also spent a lot of time praying to God and asking Jesus to help him with the severe anguish and disorientation he was experiencing, and he started to learn more about his strange environment. One day, they helped him walk to another room, and he describes the experience like this. I stood at the entrance for a while, looking at the drawing room. It was a strangely large room with all kinds of bizarre, for me, things in that tall, transparent door that offered a panoramic view of the lush countryside, the mountain slopes, and beyond. Then I started walking again, but not for long. Every two steps, I stopped and peered about. At some point, I turned around and saw the physician looking at me with a curious expression on his face. I'll never forget that look, but at that moment, I cared about nothing. It was neither the fairy tale like gold nor gems that amazed me. 
Everything there was made of a beautiful type of crystal in perfect combinations of pastel colors, sky blue, emerald green, milky white, and rose red. Everything from the tables and chairs to the stools and the frames seemed to be made of a colorless metal on which a soft light flowed incessantly in harmonious waves. Everything was bright and clear, even the flower pots and the crystal sprigs of blooming flowers. However, if you came too close, like a curious child, believing you would find something in that transparent kaleidoscope of colors, the sense of touch would correct that first impression, because the surfaces of the seats would prove soft and warm. Eventually, the people who were taking care of Paul took him to meet two men who were dressed in white. Paul didn't know if they were kings or priests, but that's the kind of impression they made. It turned out that they were called electors, with an I, electors, and they were a kind of high-ranking official who were part of the intelligentsia and that had a special position in society. He told them his story, and they believed him. They were familiar with the kind of thing that had happened to him, and they said it was one of the rarest metapsychic phenomena. They called it a personality shift. It turns out that he was now in the year A.D. 3906, and he was in the body of a man named Andreas Northam. Northam had been involved in a vehicle crash and almost died, but they started to cool down his body to preserve his brain, which actually is exactly what medical science, even in our day, indicates you should do when the heart is not beating. He spent about 15 minutes clinically dead, but then the doctors were apparently able to get his heart going again, and when he woke up, the personality shift had occurred, and now the personality of Paul Amadeus Dienach of 1921 was in the body of Andreas Northam of 3906. How did he adapt to this new situation? Did he freak out? It was pretty traumatic for him, and he had mood swings, uh, sometimes grieving for all that he'd lost, but also periods of excitement and wonder about the fantastic new world he was in. One request he made of the electors was to not spread the word around about what was going on with him, to keep it on the down low. He didn't want to become some kind of public spectacle and have people look at him like a freak. They apparently have some kind of patient privacy protection in the year 3906, but it wasn't absolute because the electors told him that the Valley of Roses will have the last word. It's up to them to decide how long this will be kept secret from the rest of the world. But he didn't know what the Valley of Roses referred to. Apparently a government body. How did they help him adapt to life in the new era? A guy named Stefan, who became his friend, started to educate him about Andreas Northam and his life, because Northam's family and friends would want to have contact with him now that he'd recovered, or at least now that Andreas Northam's body had recovered. Although the medical science of the future was familiar with the psychic personality shift phenomenon, there was one aspect of Paul's condition that puzzled them. He hadn't been sleeping at all. Ever since he first woke up two weeks earlier, he hadn't gone to sleep. And as you'll know, if you listen to episode 79 on the mystery of sleep, that's ordinarily very, very bad. There are people who have a condition known as fatal insomnia, where they can't sleep for weeks or months, and it's called fatal insomnia because it is. You end up dying from it. 
Some people have an inherited form known as fatal familial insomnia, and others have a non-inherited form known as sporadic fatal insomnia. But either way, you end up dead, although it can take years for that to happen. So it's possible for some people to go for lengthy periods without sleep, though usually there are really bad side effects. Surprisingly, in his new body, Paul seemed to be able to go indefinitely without sleep and without the crippling effects that normally has. And the physicians of 3906 weren't sure why, though presumably it was related to the personality shift. I mean, maybe the fact his body was in a coma back in 1921 was somehow keeping his mind fresh in 3906. You know, the two bodies were still connected across the personality shift, so one was able to help the other. In his diary, Paul wrote, The physicians believe that trying to induce sleep artificially would be futile. Moreover, lack of sleep is neither fatal nor very harmful in my case, according to them. At night they let me read, provided that I do it resting in bed or an armchair for at least half of the hours, and in the morning I wake up so fresh as if I've slept for seven hours. Little by little I've started picking up their language as well, the universal tongue, as Stefan calls it, or as I call it, broken Anglo-Scandinavian. This language does, however, have a certain consistency between pronunciation and writing, as I can now read much more comfortably, though I often need the help of a small dictionary. In addition to his reading, Stefan also helped give him remedial education that he would need to function in 3906. He helped him learn to speak and pronounce words properly. He explained the use and function of the technological devices that Paul didn't know about. And he started to teach him about the intervening 20 centuries of history, the present organization of society, and the beliefs and philosophies that were now common. I'm sure a lot of listeners are like me and very curious about the history of what happened between now and then. In broad strokes, what did Paul learn had happened? Well, they didn't want him to learn too much about the 20th century in case his consciousness ever slipped back to his own time. And it later did, which is how he was able to write all of this in his diary. But he learned that the 21st century had struggled with overpopulation issues in 2204, a colony was established on Mars, and in 60 years, it grew to have a population of 20 million people, but then it was destroyed. In 2309, a medium-scale nuclear war occurred and destroyed most of Europe, except for Scandinavia and the Baltic states. That's apparently why the new language was based on Scandinavian ones, since those countries survived. In 2396, they established a world government called the Rettstat, and they started using a new calendar and started numbering the years over. What number was the year for them, and how did their calendar work? Even though Paul was living in AD 3906 by our reckoning, the year was 1509 by their reckoning. But in this episode, I'll keep using our years to avoid things getting confusing. The new calendar had 12 months of 30 days each, but they didn't have names. They were just numbered months, 1 to 12. Because 12 times 30 is only 360, they needed to insert some extra days. And when a calendar uses inserted days like that, they are called intercalary days. For example, the ancient Egyptians had five intercalary days at the end of the year. The Jewish calendar has an occasional intercalary month known as Second Adar. 
And the Gregorian calendar that we use has an occasional intercalary day that we call Leap Year's Day. In 3906, there were five intercalary days that Paul became aware of. New Year's Day, which occurred on what we would call September 23rd instead of January 1st. Christmas Day, which was on the equivalent of December 25th. Setstadt Arsdag, which was the World Government Day. It kind of like our 4th of July, except theirs was on March 5th. You know, it was the founding of their of their of their nation, effectively. There was a day called the Day of Universal Altruism, which was on April 28th, and Gretwirk Arstag, the anniversary of something we'll be talking about called the Nibelwerk, which occurred on September 6th. A lot of people in our time are very skeptical of the idea of a world government. How did their world government work out for them? Over the 200 years after it was founded, the world government came to be technocratic uh, with scientists and experts in charge. By 2823, or their year 427, a post-scarcity age was in place and people's material needs were being met. Between 3000 and 3100, there was a renaissance in spiritual values, and by 3200, there was a golden age for the arts. On the artistic side, some of the greatest poets, musicians, and architects were alive at that time, and people were predicting the rise of a spiritual civilization. In 3307, a man named Alexis Volki was born, and in 3382, on September 6th, when Alexis Volki was 75 years old, he was hit by the Nibelwerk, a word for a concept that we don't have in our age. You mentioned the Nibelwerk earlier. What is it supposed to be? Well, basically, other than just being a fun word to say, the Nibelwerk is a kind of instant enlightenment. Apparently, a new brain structure had evolved, giving human beings a new sense organ inside their brain, sometimes spoken of as an antenna of perception, though it wasn't literally an antenna. The resulting new sense was named oversensans, meaning supervision or overvision, and it gave people a new spiritual perspective on the universe due to being able to perceive new aspects of reality. This evolutionary shift led to the development and spread of Homo Occidentalis Novus, or New Western Man. But the process of this brain structure becoming active was stressful, and at first many people died from it. Alexis Volki was the first person to survive acquiring the Nibelwerk. Apparently, a lot of people had approached it before, but they were driven crazy and or died. Many apparently committed suicide because they couldn't handle all the new knowledge being poured into their brains. But after Volki survived, other people did too. Eventually, it became normal for people to have their antenna of perception switched on, and having the Nibelwerk became a normal experience. This deepened awareness of the cosmos had an effect on society. With a more spiritual outlook, people didn't need to be coerced by law and government in the same way. The principle of love thy neighbor became dominant in society, and so officials now were more like regulators than people wielding what we would think of as coercive political authority. 
We'll have more to say about the Nibelwerk later, but for now you should just be aware of the concept as there were lots of other things about society that were different for Paul. And some of those would be technological. So what kind of technology did Paul learn to use? One of them was something called a Reigenswaga, which was named after its inventors, Reigen and Zvaga. Paul describes it as a type of narration that consists of a simultaneous combination of sight and sound, which you do not even need to read. A voice narrates them and you see pictures come to life before you. Based on that description, it sounds a lot like our television, which Paul would not have encountered in 1921, since the first commercial television broadcast didn't start until 1928, when the first TV station went live in New York. Later, Paul would encounter another technology that sounds a lot like a holodeck. He also discovered that a primary mode of personal travel was the Linson, a flying vehicle also named after its inventor, and of course, how good could a future be if it didn't have flying cars? There were other technologies he encountered as well, but that gives you a taste. What about the people he met? What kind of lives did they lead? Paul started to meet Andreas Northam's circle of friends, and initially, he wasn't very impressed with them. They were in their mid-twenties, but they seemed playful and childlike. They also didn't have jobs. They lived in mansions in the countryside, traveled whenever they wanted, and spent all their time on what seemed like a perpetual vacation, kind of like the idle rich in Paul's own time. And that's because Paul was now living in what we would call a post-scarcity society, where technology has advanced to the point that people don't really need to work for a living, like on Star Trek. There was an exception, though. In order to qualify as a civess or citizen, you had to do two years of actual work as a social service obligation. This was typically done after you finished your primary education when you were between 17 and 19 years old. And although not all of the jobs were fun during that time, you would earn enough money not only to pay back your parents for all they'd spent on you, but also enough to last for the rest of your own life. After that, you'd paid your dues to your parents and society and could devote yourself to whatever pursuits interested you. And some people did commit to professional careers. Andreas Northam, for example, had been a promising young scientist before his vehicle crash. How did Paul manage to pass as Northam among his old friends? They explained that Paul was acting strange because of the physical trauma he'd experienced, you know, including being dead for 15 minutes. It was accepted that a person might struggle to regain all his memory and mental capacities after an event like that, so the fact Paul was struggling at first was something that they accepted. Since we have a lot of Christian listeners, I, I know they'll be interested in what religion was like in the 40th century. So what can you tell us? A lot of people in our day say that they are spiritual but not religious, and since Paul was living in a society in which spirituality was a key value, you might wonder if that also applied to the people of the 40th century. But it didn't seem to. In addition to placing value on spirituality, they also placed value on religious practice. I don't know what religions may have been common in other parts of the world, but Paul was in Europe, and Europe clearly still had a Christian heritage that was in place. One of the things that was common in Paul's area was something called the prayer of the dusk, which they heard every afternoon. And this seems to be basically a future version of our vespers or evening prayer. 
Also, Paul reported going to Mass on Christmas Eve, and he reports it as if it were a normal thing to do. So the Catholic faith was still around, operating above ground, and socially common. Were there differences compared to today? Had doctrinal development occurred? Paul didn't seem to be a theologian, so he may not have been sensitive to a good bit of the doctrinal development that would be certain to happen in a 2,000-year period. But he did notice some differences. The ones he did notice came out of the Nibelwerk evolutionary development, you know, that had occurred to the human race. That seems to have been the principal driver of the doctrinal development he was aware of. Doctrinal development, for people who may not be familiar, is the process by which the church progressively understands its teachings more deeply and formulates them more precisely. A key concept that people were talking about in the 40th century was samith, a term for the whole of reality, which is incomprehensible to finite human minds. The Nibelwerk gave them direct sensory experience of a great mystery that's at the base of reality. They called it the samith, and even though they could now sense it, they realized that it's beyond the capacity of our finite minds to comprehend. And this is an interesting thing that they were able to do because biological evolution doesn't lack precursors. Before you get creatures with fully developed eyes, you get creatures with simpler proto-eyes or even just light-sensitive patches on their skin. So if we were evolving towards having a spiritual sense that would let us sense the mystery at the base of reality, you'd expect to see precursors earlier in human history. And Stefan indicated that there had been already a striving for this great mystery even before the Nibelwerk happened. That was the explanation for man striving for art, beauty, and altruism all through human history. And eventually it paid off in the Nibelwerk. But this didn't mean that they'd figured out everything. Actually, they'd realized how much they didn't know. Stefan told him, Not that we have now grasped the meaning of life. On the contrary, but even the fact that we know how indescribably great the reality objectively is, and the fact that we know it exists for everyone, sooner or later, is enough to free us. The time-space continuum, you see, is not exactly as imagined by human perception. Infinity and the ever-present are one and the same. Objective reality is multidimensional. Numbers, matter, the spirit, individuals, ideas, or infinity do not exist separately but altogether. If we could penetrate the true meaning of each of the aspects of the Samith, the great reality, then we would also feel God. We would be able to understand the purpose, texture, and meaning of life. We would acquire a wisdom superior to that of humans. But that just can't happen, my friend. Direct knowledge, the Nibelwerk, showed us that the physical universe, creation, God, infinity, and all these notions are mere aspects, mere sides of the great reality. And there is a multitude of other sides inconceivable to humans. So the Samith is a mystery that can't be fully fathomed by our minds. Given how spiritual the people of 3906 were supposed to be, does that mean none of them ever did things that were wrong, that they never committed sins? No, it didn't. While love thy neighbor was a key ideal for their society, people did violate it. For example, to deal with the problem of overpopulation that our time faced, the regulators of their society had established limits on how many children people could have. This made it 
technically illegal to have a child beyond those limits, but it did happen. Stefan indicated that this was rare because most people would be too ashamed to have an illegal childbirth, but apparently some people did. And this reflects the fact that original sin is a reality and nothing that happens before the second coming of Christ will eliminate human sin. And the second coming had not happened yet. Before we leave the 40th century, I got to ask, by the year 3906, had we made contact with aliens? The answer is yes, but it's more complex than you might think. The subject comes up in a section where Paul is expressing his concern about the people of the 40th century. In his diary, he writes, The 40th century's people are also at a major disadvantage. With the disappearance of all risks whatsoever, humans' ability to fight and cope with difficulties has been dulled. It's incredibly unlikely to find warriors nowadays. They're like a defenseless species on the brink of extinction. Therefore, in case of a potential external danger, nobody would know how to react. But if you argue that to somebody, they'll reply that there are no longer dangers and more powerful neighbors and all that are a thing of the past. In fact, they explained to me that the destruction of civilization always takes place immediately after a sudden boom in culture when hardships have yielded to art and inner cultivation. That's when the uncouth invaders make their appearance and ruin everything. And that actually sounds like the situation in which they were living. They were experiencing a boom in art and culture, and they didn't have hardships, but they didn't realize that this was precisely when invaders could show up and ruin everything. Yet, they didn't apply that lesson to themselves and feared their extraterrestrial neighbors. But the most incredible thing I've been told is that they don't even fear their extraterrestrial neighbors. They've told me that they know all about the neighboring planets and that the few that have life on them, exclamation point, are inhabited by intelligent and spiritual beings that lack the instinct of domination and the concept of conquest and expansion. They have a much higher view of and respect for life, and they are completely harmless to humans. They could have pursued contact with us thousands of years ago if they had wanted to. They already had the necessary technology to do it, but they didn't because these creatures did not want any contact or relationship with us, not even a peaceful one. They preferred to watch us and study us from above, thus satisfying their thirst for research. It was in their nature. That was their mentality. So the extraterrestrials they were aware of had spiritual civilizations too and didn't want face-to-face -face contact. They weren't expansionist. Presumably, these alien races had their own equivalent of the antenna of perception in their brains, giving them the Nibelwerk. And so they weren't interested in unduly expanding beyond their own planets. That was the explanation for the Fermi paradox that we discussed way back in episode 10, why the universe doesn't seem to be filled with technologically advanced aliens. It was because they have inwardly focused spiritual civilizations that aren't interested in making their presence known on an interstellar scale. But this didn't mean that we'd had no visits from them. The only times that they tried to contact us were when they felt that man was in danger of extinction because of his immaturity and his inability to handle the tremendous power of nature that he had unlocked. Then, they told me, they approached us, taught us, and disappeared again. And that actually could explain some of the encounters that have been reported with aliens in our own time. As we'll discuss in future episodes, UFOs are reported to have an interest in our nuclear weapons facilities, and many have suggested that they're here to warn us away from nuclear weapons or nuclear war. 
as the recent encounters that the Defense Department has revealed, they also definitely seem to have an interest in our nuclear-armed naval flotillas, like in the Tic Tac incident. In any event, by the year 3906, we were aware of the aliens, but hadn't had a lot of contact. What happened to Paul Dinoch? How did all this knowledge get back to the 20th century? Paul's journey to the 40th century while he was experiencing the effects of encephalitis lethargica, lasted a whole year, starting in May of 1921. He was in a coma that whole time. During it, he was in a hospital bed in Zurich, and he was kept alive by being fed through a tube. Also during that year, his mother died, and he was very close to his mother, so it was very painful for him that he never got to say goodbye to her. When he got back and found out, he wanted to talk to his priest again, but Father Jacob was away in Italy. So in July of 1922, two months after he woke up, Paul started a new diary to help him process what had happened to him. The next month, in August of 1922, Paul ran into Father Jacob, who had returned from Italy, and he told the priest that all of his doubts about the faith were gone. Entertaining doubts about the faith was something he had been feeling guilty about in their initial conversations, but after his visit to the year 3906, he experienced such a sense of wonder that he no longer had doubts. But not everything was well with Paul. Sometime before he fell into his second coma, he had begun experiencing symptoms of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is a bacterial infection of the lungs, and if it becomes symptomatic and is not treated, it kills about half the people who come down with it. Fortunately, active cases of tuberculosis are rare today because we now have a vaccine and 90% of children worldwide have been vaccinated, making the TB vaccine the most widely used one in the world. Also, we have antibiotics that can help treat active cases of TB. But those weren't available in Paul's day, and although the vaccine was first used on humans in 1921, Paul hadn't received it. So what did his doctors recommend? Based on the way his disease was progressing, they thought Paul might have a couple of years left, and they recommended that he move away from Zurich to a country that had a more temperate climate. So he moved to Athens, Greece, to take advantage of the Mediterranean climate. Did he have money to live on? How did he survive there? Paul started doing private tutoring and teaching German and French to young students. That's how he met Georgios Papachatsis, who was then a boy and or, you know, teenager, and came to Paul for tutoring in German. Papachatsis was born in 1905, so he would have been around 18 in 1923 when he started taking German lessons from Paul. He would grow up to be a famous Greek law professor and government official, and it was through him that we learned about Paul's visit to the future. I mentioned Paul had begun keeping this new diary, and in it, he wrote down his experiences of the year 3906. He spent a lot of time writing about this, and he managed to complete it before his death. And when did that occur? It appears to have been in the spring of 1924. According to Papa Hatsis, he passed away, I gather, in the Athenian suburb of Marusi, or perhaps on his way back to his homeland through Italy in some town of our neighboring peninsula, most probably during the first six months of 1924, after suffering an attack of tuberculosis, which manifested in Athens and did not last but a few months. 
But before he died, Paul gave Papahatsis his diary, and he suggested that he use it to continue his language studies by translating it from German to Greek, which Papahatsis did. And what did he think once he started reading it? He was amazed, and at first he thought that Paul had written a novel. But eventually he reconsidered and started thinking that actually Paul's diary might be factual. The current edition of Paul's diary, which has the title Chronicles from the Future, is edited by a man named Achilles Sigiros, and in his preface, he picks up the story of what happened with the diary. George Papahasis gradually translated Dinoch's notes with his not-so-perfect German over a period of 14 years, 1926 to 1940, mostly in his spare time and summer breaks. World War II and the Greek Civil War delayed his efforts of spreading the amazing story that landed on his desk all those years ago. On the eve of Christmas in 1944, Papahasis was staying with friends at a house which was also used by the Greek army. When the soldiers caught sight of Dinoch's notes, which were of course in German, they confiscated them because they considered them suspicious. They told Papahasis that they would return them only after they had examined their contents. They never did. But by then, Papahasis had already finished the translation. After the end of World War II and the Greek Civil War, Papahasis gave the translated diary to some of his friends, Masons, Theosophists, professors of theology, and two anti-Nazi Germans. And after that, when everybody realized what they had in their hands, the diary was kept within a close philosophical circle and in the Teutonic Lodge, in which he was a high-ranking member. The book was taken very seriously by the Masons, who did not want the information spread to a larger circle. They considered the book to be almost holy, containing wisdom about the future of humanity, and better kept only for the few. We will be talking about Masons and Theosophists in future episodes, but for now we'll keep the focus on Paul Dinoch. Eventually, Papahatsis decided to publish his Greek translation of the diary, which he did in 1973. He then released a second edition in 1979, and in 2015, Achilles Siguros issued the English version we've been quoting from. And that brings us to our theories, but before we do that, let's first thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Curtis C., Daniele P., Tyrus B., Teresa M., and Chris G., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light. Who do you become when the world falls away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash the Light, appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about Paul Amadeus Dinach and his amazing experience in prophecies? There would be two basic theories. First, Paul Amadeus Dinach had a genuine paranormal experience that reveals what will happen in the future, or at least in a possible future, if history can be changed. And second, 
Paul Dinoch did not have a genuine paranormal experience, in which case there are a number of possible sub-explanations. He was the victim of false coma memories or coma dreams. He experienced mental illness after the coma that made him believe he had had this experience. He hoaxed it all. He was writing fiction. And there's one more theory that we'll also need to consider. All right, let's start with the faith perspective. What can we say about Paul Amadeus Dinoch from the faith perspective? There's definitely a religious spiritual aspect to the world in which Paul found himself. For example, Paul early on mentions the prayer of the dusk that the people in his area heard performed every afternoon as sunset approached, like evening prayer in the Catholic Church. In fact, this may have simply been a future version of today's evening prayer or vespers. At a minimum, the common hearing of the prayer of the dusk indicates a profound religiosity or spirituality affecting the population in a broad way. Paul also seems to indicate that Christianity and Catholicism were common. He mentions going to Mass on Christmas Eve as if that's a normal thing, which would suggest a substantial Catholic presence in Europe. But it seems that many people were not Christian also. For example, his friend Stefan respected Christianity, but did not seem to identify as a Christian. Also, Stefan's perspective seems to have been a common one, although you could question exactly how common it was. It could have just been a viewpoint that was common in the circles that Andreas Northam traveled in, in which case many people might have had other views, or it could have been a common view in Europe, but not in other parts of the world, or it could have been a common view across the world, in which case only a smaller number of people would have identified as Christians in the modern sense. There's Really no way of knowing, given Paul's limited perspective on the world he was experiencing. And what did Stefan believe? His belief system seems to have been principally based around the Nibelwerk and the teaching that stemmed from it. It was a kind of Nibelwerk-based spirituality without a lot of doctrinal content, just a love-your-neighbor ethic and a belief in the great universal mystery at the base of reality that people could sense. What do you make of the Nibelwerk? Actually, I think this is one of the most interesting things about Paul's story because of selection pressure that is going on right now in humanity. We are continuing to evolve. There's evidence, for example, that in just the last few hundred years, there has been selection pressure on our genes that has two effects of an intellectual nature. The first is the selection pressure is driving our intelligence up so we're smarter than our ancestors a few hundred years ago were. And second, we're more cooperative, so we're less violent on a genetic level than our ancestors a few hundred years ago were. Between the boost in intelligence and the boost in cooperativeness, this helps explain why we're able to build bigger, more successful societies than in the past. So in the last few thousand years, We've been experiencing cognitive changes as a result of ongoing selection pressure, and it's not unreasonable to think that another notable cognitive development could happen in the next 2,000 years. And that's not even taking genetic engineering into account. So I find the idea of the Nibelwerk really interesting. And notice how the Nibelwerk follows the two trends I've just mentioned. The people of the 40th century are supposed to be both smarter than we are, at least in terms of knowledge, and they're more cooperative than we are. They have a more spiritually oriented, less mutually competitive society. 
What effects would something like the Nibelwerk have on Christian teaching? It's hard to say in advance. However, increasing knowledge does have the effect of driving doctrinal development forward. So, you know, when astronomers and physicists began making their discoveries between the 1400s and the 1600s, it caused us to take another look at various biblical texts and consider whether they actually require that the earth be at the center of the universe. And when scholars looked at it and posed it in those terms, they said, actually, these passages don't require that. They're just speaking from an earthbound perspective. Similarly, when biologists and geneticists started making their discoveries in the 1800s and 1900s, it caused us to take a new look at other biblical passages and see whether they were compatible with evolution, and the church concluded that they are. So in both cases, new knowledge from the sciences, which is based on observation by the senses, caused us to take a fresh look at the data of divine revelation and see new possibilities about how it can be understood. The divine revelation is just as true as it's always been, but now that we have this additional context from science, it has led the church to formulate its teachings in a more precise way that has resulted in doctrinal development. So, if something like the Nibelwerk happened and we suddenly got effectively a whole new physical sense that expanded our knowledge of the world, you would expect it to do the same kind of thing. Divine revelation would still be just as true as always, but we'd have additional context for that revelation and doctrinal development would happen. Based on what Paul was told, was there doctrinal development that would be consistent with the infallible teachings of the church? This is where we hit a real problem. Stefan apparently believed in reincarnation, and the diary presents that as knowledge that came out of the Nibelwerk. This is not compatible with the church's infallible teachings. Hebrews 9.27 makes it absolutely clear that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Our destiny thus is not to reincarnate, but to resurrect, just like Jesus resurrected. And this is infallibly defined by the magisterium. So the idea of reincarnation can't be a legitimate doctrinal development. It's possible that reincarnation was just something that Stefan believed, but that the Orthodox Christians of the 40th century didn't believe. Or it's possible that Paul didn't understand what Stefan was telling him or that he misremembered what Stefan told him and kind of garbled it when he got back to the 20th century. But one way or another, it's not possible for reincarnation to be a legitimate doctrinal development. And that gives us a reason to doubt at least part of Paul's story when it comes to the Nibelwerk. Are there other reasons to doubt the idea of the Nibelwerk? What you might think of is the way it supposedly spread. The way Paul tells it, it sounds like after Alexis Volkey survived the transition in 3382, it became universal fairly quickly. But that's not how evolution works. When a beneficial mutation happens, it will spread through the population, but that will still take many generations. You wouldn't expect it to be universal in mankind by the year 3906. That's just 524 years later. On the other hand, this also could be something that Paul misunderstood or misremembered, and it actually wasn't fully universal in the 40th century. Or the people of the future could have helped evolution along with a selective breeding program, or perhaps by genetic engineering, which actually would make a good explanation. If some people had a new genetic mutation that gave you a dramatic advantage, 
people would want it and they would demand to be given it by gene therapy rather than remain disadvantaged compared to other people. So since we have early gene therapy methods now, like CRISPR, you would expect the people of the future to quickly spread a new beneficial gene or set of genes in that way without waiting for evolution to take its course. So I actually don't think the universality of the Nibelwerk in 3906 is a particularly strong reason to doubt it. But Stefan's belief in reincarnation being attributed to the Nibelwerk is problematic. All right, let's turn to the reason perspective. Gene editing gets us to the kind of technology they had, so we're starting to blend the faith perspective with the reason perspective. What can we say about Paul Amadeus Dinoch from this angle? What are the chances that he had a genuine paranormal experience that reveals what will happen in the future? If it was a paranormal experience, it would have either been of supernatural or natural origin. If it was supernatural, then it would be a vision Paul received, either of divine origin or demonic origin. However, it didn't present itself as a vision, and we should always interpret phenomena according to how they appear until we get evidence that they're really something else. You know, if you see your wife in the morning, you should assume it is your wife until you get evidence that it's an imposter. In this case, Paul's experience didn't present itself as a vision. What if it were a natural paranormal phenomenon? What would that be? Well, some kind of psychic experience, and even though experiences like Paul's aren't commonly reported, it looks like a combination of psychic phenomena that are reported. Precognition is supposed to involve viewing the future. In an out-of-body experience, a person's perspective shifts in a way that seems to leave their actual body behind, and their body may be dormant. And sometimes remote viewers report experiencing such profound sensory experiences that they seem in their mind to be somewhere else and they lose consciousness of their actual surroundings. So you could propose that Paul had a kind of really intense remote viewing or out-of-body experience of the future of some kind. Whether you think this is possible, of course, will depend on whether you think psychic abilities themselves are possible. If you think they might be real, then you'd want to be open to Paul's experience, at least in principle. But if you don't think they're real, then what he reported would have to be some kind of coma-induced hallucination. Supposing that Paul's experience was genuinely psychic, would that mean that everything he said was right and that the future will unfold this way? No, as we discussed in episodes 105 and 106 on Aquinas and the Occult, Aquinas believed that humans do have a natural precognitive ability that can manifest in dreams. He called this natural prophecy to distinguish it from the supernatural prophecy given by God. But unlike supernatural prophecy, Aquinas said natural prophecy is probabilistic in nature, so it doesn't give 100% accuracy. As a result, Aquinas would hold that if Paul was having coma dreams that were naturally prophetic, it wouldn't give us a 100% accurate picture of the future. And that goes along with the results reported by remote viewers today. The future is thought to be especially difficult to view, and even the best remote viewers only achieve an accuracy you know, something like two-thirds of the time. The rest of the time, it's their imagination interfering with the results they get. Also, if there are multiple timelines, Paul might have been viewing only a possible future and not the one that will actually unfold. And 
Then there's the problem of how much Paul would accurately remember once he woke up. So regardless of how you look at it, you wouldn't expect him to have a 100% accurate picture of the future. Even if this were a genuine psychic experience, you'd expect significant chunks of Paul's information to be imagination or misremembering. What evidence do people cite in favor of this being a genuinely psychic experience? Chiefly the fact that Paul's diary predicts things in the future that came true or that are likely to come true. Although the diary dates from 1923, he predicts a massive nuclear war that will happen several centuries from now. He also predicts that overpopulation would be a significant issue in the near future from his perspective. And he predicts the invention of devices like television or at least talking pictures since he doesn't mention the broadcast element of the technology. How impressive do you find those predictions? Not particularly. The idea of the atomic bomb had already been proposed a decade before Paul's time. It's found, for example, in H.G. Wells' 1914 novel, The World Set Free, where Wells imagines people dropping uranium hand grenades out of airplanes. And Wells's fiction was extremely popular. So the idea of nuclear weapons and nuclear wars was already out there in the culture. The idea of overpopulation happening had been out there in the culture even longer. People had been worrying about that ever since Thomas Malthus's 1798 book, An Essay on the Principle of Population. And Paul lived in an age of record players and movies, so it wouldn't have been hard to predict the idea that these technologies might be combined. In fact, in the year 1923, there was already a public demonstration of talking pictures in the form of a short subject, and the feature-length film The Jazz Singer would be released in 1927. So none of these predictions are particularly impressive. They were all things that were there in the culture in 1923. Are there other reasons to doubt that this was a genuine experience of the future? One of the things I couldn't help thinking when reading the diary is that the technology Paul is describing for the year 3906 isn't advanced enough. Now, there are several ways you could explain this. One is that they had a major nuclear war, which would have set back civilization, but it occurred in 2309, 1600 years before 3906. and that's not an excuse. You can totally rebuild a technological civilization in 1600 years. Another explanation would be that Paul simply didn't understand a lot of what he was seeing and was interpreting it in terms of technology that he did understand. If he encountered things he had no way of comprehending, he wouldn't be able to talk about them effectively and write them in his diary and describe them effectively once he got back. And Paul said that the society had become more spiritually focused rather than technologically focused. So they may not have cared as much as we would about pushing the technology forward. But still, the society Paul describes feels too normal, too much like our own time with a few tweaks of the sort that a science fiction author might imagine. Not a society that's really as different as we'd expect 2,000 years from now. Let's consider some non-paranormal theories then. What are the options if Paul Dinoch didn't have a genuine paranormal experience? Well, we've already mentioned one of those, which is the idea that he simply had dreams in his coma about living in the future. And people do report dreams in comas, despite what you may have heard. 
Another possibility is that he experienced mental illness after his coma, perhaps the encephalitis. He had even produced the mental illness, and he then began having delusions about having lived in the future. What about the idea that Paul Dinoch hoaxed it all, that he wrote his manuscripts with the intention to trick people after his death into believing that he'd mentally traveled to the future? This isn't particularly well supported by the evidence. If he'd had such an intention, you'd expect him to make it explicit. You'd expect him to tell someone, I had this amazing experience of traveling to the future and I want you to know about it. But that's not what he did. Instead, he just gave the manuscript to Papahatsis as a translation exercise from German to Greek when he was leaving, basically. If you were trying to stage a hoax, you would expect Enoch to give his manuscript to someone who would have an immediate prospect of publishing it, like a reporter or a book publisher. You wouldn't expect him to take the trouble of writing a book-length manuscript and then give it to a 19-year-old kid with no prospect of publishing it for years, and who, in fact, would not publish it until 1973, nearly seven full decades later. Entrusting the manuscript to a person like this was not what you would expect from a person who was trying to pull off a literary hoax. So it doesn't look like a literary hoax by Paul Dinoch. What about the idea that George Papachatzis initially had that Paul had been writing fiction? This hypothesis needs to be taken seriously. Uh, after all, the idea that this was a real experience of the future was not something that Paul told Papahatsis. It's something he inferred on his own after reading the diary. Paul didn't claim that he visited the future, so this could just be a novel that he was doing using himself as a character in the novel. And I think there's some evidence you could point to in this regard. First, isn't it interesting? that Paul lived in the early 20th century and visited the early 40th century, almost exactly 2,000 years after his life and 2,000 years after his lost love for Anna. And that 2,000 years business, that's too round a number for a random trip in time. Second, if you read the first pages of the diary, they foreshadow how the book will progress. For example, Here's part of the diary entry for January 23rd, 1919. It's the fourth misty, cloudy day in a row. What can one do in this weather? No friends come to visit me anymore. I'm reading a history book. Since primary school, history has always had the power to sweep me away. I remember thinking back then that we were all born in a certain place and era out of mere coincidence. We could have easily been born in a completely different country, culture, and even century with completely different friends, occupations, and sweethearts. But we wouldn't be able to know any of the things that were to happen later, that is, now. And then, as the book unfolds, Paul is swept away to another country, culture, and century, with different friends, occupations, and even a sweetheart in the future named Sylvia. Also, Paul's priest friend, Father Jacob, talks to Paul about how lucky Paul is to have had a love like Anna and how he, a priest, will never know such a love. And in the same conversation, Father Jacob starts talking to Paul about maybe getting a sign of Anna's love for him, even from beyond the grave, since she was dead at this point. Paul starts praying about this, and as the diary progresses, he has his trip to the future, which ends in a very interesting way. Now, before we look at that, 
we need to look at the last experiences Paul had with Anna before she died. For the rest of my life, no matter how long that will be, the memory of Anna that night, the last time I ever saw her alive, standing in front of me, will always be fresh and vivid in my mind. She wasn't sad. On the contrary, she was full of optimism. She was laughing. I couldn't stop gazing at her. We were on our hill. I pressed my lips against her hair. Around us, only blossoming windflowers. Enough for today. Let's go back. I have to be home early, she said. Next time we're here, I'll make a wreath of windflowers. Will you place it on my head? Promise me that I will see you again, that they're not going to bend you. We will come here again, she promised. I swear to you that we'll come back. And for those who aren't botanists or gardeners, windflowers are a real kind of flower that really exists. In any event, at the end of the diary, Paul has been getting close to his sort of future girlfriend, Sylvia, and they take a trip into the country. And we read this. We talked about a thousand things, and Sylvia was very cheerful. In fact, at times I caught her humming while she was tying a dark green silk thread around the windflowers that we had just gathered together. She was making a little wreath. Then I remember asking her which part of all that we had seen and experienced over the past few months she had enjoyed the most. The words she uttered next made me even happier than I was. It's beautiful everywhere, as long as we're together. She stretched out her hand, handing out to me the wreath she had finished making, and asked me, Will you put this wreath on my head? I think it's time we headed home. Enough for today. Put it on my head and let's go. I want to be wearing it on the way back. To her, these words might have been as simple and unimportant as a drop of water in the ocean, but she had no idea what effect they had on me. Lost as I was, amidst an unprecedented thrill and surprise, I took a look around me and couldn't believe it. I had only just realized that all this time we had been sitting at the very spot, on the very hill, where thousands of years ago Anna had talked to me about a wreath of windflowers. I remembered exactly what she had told me that day. Enough for today. Let's go back. I have to be home early. Next time we're here, I'll make a wreath of windflowers. Will you place it on my head? She then promised, she swore to me, that we'd come back, and yet that was one of the last times I ever saw her alive. And then I felt a spark inside me ignite and explode. And Paul is overcome with a powerful epiphany of the beauty of God's creation and design. Later that night, he falls asleep for the first time in a year and wakes up back in 1922. So, this is an incredibly literary ending. The implication is that Sylvia is the reincarnation of Anna, that Anna was right when she said that they would come back to this same hill, which is still there 2,000 years later. And just like the first time, she made a wreath of windflowers and asked Paul to put them on her head before they went back. And this was the spiritual breakthrough Paul needed. It was the sign he had prayed for as a signal of Anna's eternal love for him, like Father Jacob suggested he might receive. This is way too cinematic, too literary for an ending for it to be credible as an authentic account of history, which is just far messier than this. It's an embodiment of the principle articulated by the Irish novelist and playwright Samuel Beckett. The end is in the beginning. The end of Paul's diary is found at the beginning of the diary in a clearly literary way. As a result, 
I can't regard this as a literal account of a visit to the future. It's a work of literature. Does that mean that Georgios Papagassis' initial theory that this was a novel Paul wrote was correct? No, because there's another theory we need to consider, that Paul Amadeus Dinoch never existed. <laughs> Why should we think that? When I first encountered the story, there were several things that immediately made me begin wondering whether it was real, and I decided to start investigating. One of the things, one of the first things I started doing was looking into the sepia tone photograph of Paul. It appears on many of the web pages about him, and to let you see it, we've included it in our episode artwork for today. If the photograph was genuine, well, that would prove that Paul Dinoch existed, but it could also be fake that it was a photograph of some random person that people on the internet had attached to the Dinoch story. I quickly discovered the latter was the case. The picture is actually of a criminal from New Zealand by the name Daniel Towhill. He lived in the same time frame that Dinoch supposedly lived in, so he's dressed appropriately for the period, but it's not the same guy. Daniel Towhill, incidentally, has an interesting story of his own, so we'll have a link to where you can read about him. But the point is, he's not the same guy, and so the photo doesn't provide any evidence that Dinoch existed. What were some of the things that made you suspect that Dinoch himself might be fictional? Uh, there were several, and we'll save the bigger ones for last, but one of the things was that I recognized that the Dinoch story has an uncanny similarity to a famous novella by the American sci-fi horror author H.P. Lovecraft. In 1936, Lovecraft published a novella called The Shadow Out of Time. In this story, a man in the early 20th century, specifically from the year 1908, goes into a coma and mentally travels to another time where he lives in another body. He experiences many wonders in this other world, but eventually he comes back to his own time, wakes up in his own body. Afterwards, he is shaken by the experience and has trouble adjusting psychologically to what happened to him, and he starts writing about it in first-person narrative. In Lovecraft's story, the man who mentally travels in time is named Nathaniel Wingate Peasley, whereas here it's Paul Amadeus Dinoch. The difference between the two stories is that Dinoch traveled into the future and saw its amazing futuristic technologically advanced civilization, while Peasley in The Shadow Out of Time traveled into the distant past and saw its amazing, long-lost, technologically advanced civilization. So, Dinoch's Chronicles from the Future is a kind of mirror image or reverse shadow out of time. And the shadow out of time may have been one of the inspirations for Dinoch's tale, but since Lovecraft's novella wasn't published until 1936... Twelve years after Dinoch's supposed death in 1924, that means Dinoch couldn't have written it. This would point to someone else writing Chronicles from the Future. So unless we have proof that Dinoch existed, he could easily be fictional, too. Do we have evidence that Dinoch existed? Oh, that's the thing. We don't. 
In addition to the supposed photo of Dinoch, one of the first things I checked was whether there were any records of him existing. I realized that if he was real, we should have birth records, baptismal records, employment records, and so forth. So I put out a call on Facebook asking for someone who might be able to check such records, and mysterious irregular Sarah Kranz responded. She did multiple record searches, and she was not able, you know, they have these online for like genealogical research. She did multiple record searches, and she was not able to find any record of Paul Amadeus Dinoch in the vicinity of Zurich. For example, Paul Dinoch should have been listed in the Zurich City Directory between 1914 and 1921 when he was still living there, and he wasn't. Sarah checked multiple spellings of his last name in case there had been any error, and there were no records of any man with any similar name. The closest match that she was able to find was the grave of a Jewish woman named Paula Dienick, rather than Paul Dienach. Paula passed away in 1922 rather than 1924 and is buried in Vienna, Austria. But she's the wrong sex, the wrong religion, has the wrong last name, died in the wrong year, and is buried in the wrong country, Austria rather than Switzerland. And nobody even close to Paul Amadeus Dinoch is on record. And by the way, special thanks to mysterious irregular Sarah Kranz for doing the research. Are there any ways to square the Dinoch story with the absence of records on him? One of them is suggested in Chronicles from the Future. According to Georgios Papahatsis, he tried for years to find evidence of Paul and his family around Zurich and couldn't. An idea that was suggested to him is that Paul never used his real name when he was in Greece. The theory is that he wasn't Swiss, but German. That he had fought as a German soldier in World War I, and that he was ashamed of his country's imperial ambitions in that war. As a result, he didn't use his real name and claimed to be a neutral Swiss citizen rather than an imperialistic German soldier. That seems very convenient. So does the fact that during World War II, a group of Germans took Paul's original diary from Papahatsis and never returned it. That means that we don't have the original manuscript to examine and see if it might really date to the 1920s. It's all very convenient, and this is another instance of the case of the missing evidence. As a result, I don't think we can rely on this being remotely true. And notice that the supposed predictions the diary made, you know, nuclear war, overpopulation, and television, were even easier to make by 1973 when Papahatsis published his book. In fact, all three of those, nuclear war, overpopulation, and television, were major themes in 1970s culture. Wasn't Papahatsis a highly respected individual in Greece? Why would he commit such a hoax? Well, he was highly respected. In his editor's introduction to the English version of Chronicles from the Future, Achilles Sirigus writes, I have to remark that while Papahatsis was just a student at the time of receiving Dinoch's diary, he went on to become a very respectable man of his era. He was a prominent professor of administrative law, rector of Pantheon University of Social and Political Sciences, founding member of the Greek Philosophical Society, and vice president of the Council of State, the Supreme Court of Greece. He was a man of impeccable credibility who risked a lot in publishing Dinoch's work, and this on its own reflects his unwavering belief in its authenticity. 
But I don't think that stops us from concluding that he was the author of the hoax. In fact, given the way the book begins and ends, I have to question how much Papachatzis ever expected people to take this as a serious, literal account rather than a literary one. In his original 1973 edition of the book, Papahatsis has a lengthy translator's preface, quote-unquote, and it's clear from it that Papahatsis is an intellectual, as you would expect from someone with his background. He's constantly referring to past and present scientists and philosophers and literary authors and intellectuals, and those are exactly the kinds of things that Paul Dinoch is talking about with people throughout the course of his diary. It's like Paul Dinoch's intellectual interests are the same as Giorgio's Papachatzis. They're both constantly going on about the ideas of major intellectuals. Chronicles from the Future is, in fact, an intellectual novel, a novel about ideas. And it's not unique in that. Lots of authors have written intellectual novels. One was the German author Johann von Goethe. Goethe has been called Germany's equivalent of Shakespeare, only where Shakespeare was about telling compelling stories with emotion and poetry, Goethe is about telling stories with emotion and ideas. He crams them with lots of emotion and philosophical ideas, just like Chronicles from the Future. In fact, when reading the book, I couldn't help being reminded of one of Goethe's novels called The Sorrows of Young Werther. What is The Sorrows of Young Werther? It's an autobiographical novel written in the form of letters, you know, very much like Paul's diary entries. These are penned by a sensitive, fragile young man named Werther. He falls in love with a woman named Charlotte, who is engaged to a much older man, just like Anna is in Paul's diary, and the tragic love triangle that results can only be resolved by death. But whereas The Sorrows of Young Werther is fully tragical, Paul's diary is tragic but turns hopeful before the end. In any event, I couldn't help thinking of how Werther and his emotionally fragile, depressed narration mirrors the similarly emotionally fragile, depression-tinged narration of Paul Dinoch. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line about Paul Amadeus Dinoch? I think that he never existed. I think that this diary was a philosophical novel written by Georgios Papahatsis. I don't think that it was meant to be taken seriously, at, not, at least not by the intelligent reader. Uh, I think that Papahatsis expected careful readers to see through the literary devices and understand what they were reading. I also think that one of its major inspirations was likely to have been H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time, and another might have been Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther. So if the listener would like some more uh, resources on this, what could we offer? We will have a link to where you can get the book, Chronicles from the Future, so you can read it for yourself. Also, H.P. Lovecraft's book, The Shadow Out of Time, will have a link to the corrected version, because when they first published it in Weird Tales, they didn't do it the way Lovecraft wanted. We'll have links to Georgios Papahatsis, Fatal Insomnia, the story of the criminal Daniel Towhill, an article about the photo of Daniel Towhill and how it keeps popping up different places on the internet. The text of Lovecraft's novella, The Shadow Out of Time, this is a online version, but it's not corrected. An audio version of the novella, an article on H.P. Wells and Atomic Bombs, Dreams in Comas, The Sorrows of Young Werther, and that should about do it. 
So, Jimmy, uh, we have some mysterious feedback from our listeners this week, and uh, we want to start with some fan art. Yeah, at Pandamonium135. So, at Pandamonium135 did an illustration of a very stylish hairdo for repelling the fearsome drop bears that we talked about back in episode 148. So be sure to click the link in the further resources and you can see the really nice illustration she did of the anti-drop bear hairdo. (laughs) Very useful. And then we have feedback on episode 161, the government UFO report. Len on Facebook wrote, Whatever you need to do to keep these episodes once a week is fine by me. Keep them coming. And uh, Lynn is responding to a discussion we had in the actually in the feedback section of the government UFO report episode where we talked about everything that goes into the program and all the research and recording and blah, uh, just all the all the things. And sometimes we have two parters as a result of that because Otherwise, I'd have to double the amount of research I'm doing. And if a story is interesting enough, sometimes it's hard to edit it down to just a single episode. There's so much to say. And so we had kind of explained the philosophy and people were talking about uh, it. Several people responding to this talked about their preferences on how we should proceed. I didn't see anybody who said skip weeks. Nobody seemed to favor that. I saw uh, one or two people who said that they weren't fans of the two-parters, but most people seem to understand it. And so I appreciate that. My current strategy is to try to have in a four-week month to have two one-parters and one two-parter to keep a mix of them. Father Horton sent an email. Uh, I hadn't appreciated how much work goes into an episode until until you explained why you do two and three parters. I certainly had no idea that there's no financial incentive except tangentially. I'm very grateful for what you do. I can't count the number of times I've been asked a question over the past few years and given an answer I learned from the show, usually adding, there's a great episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on this. Thank you, Father Horton. And uh, just so listeners are aware, we've only ever done one three-parter. That was on Young Earth, and nobody seemed to have a problem with that one. And I'm not sure what tangential financial interest I have, because I'm actually spending money on uh, on this with all the books and stuff I buy for research. But uh, thank you very much, and I'm glad that that discussion helped help inform people of actually just how much work goes into this. Uh, Sean writes on YouTube, every two-parter you've had, I felt is justified. I mean, not that you need to justify what you do with your time to me. Keeping the episodes to 45 minutes to an hour works really well for me, and I can't think of any two-parter that you've done where I'd be satisfied with you giving less information in total. I'd be done with a three, five, or even ten-parter if you had a topic that had that much depth. I mean, how many episodes are we up to on UFOs and aliens now? And every one of them is unique and valuable, and and I'm not even an aliens UFO fan. Well, thank you. Um, And in the case of like alien UFO episodes there, we do have quite a number of them and they're a regular topic on the show. So we there's a lot of material to be mined there, but I am trying to spread it out so that we don't have like a huge run. I want to keep the topics changing, if not every single week, at least every couple of weeks so that people who aren't into a particular subject will have something that may be more to their tastes very quickly. On the other hand, if you really want deep dives, you know, uh, like five, six, seven, ten parters, check out the podcast Astonishing Legends. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they have like a 13-hour epic marathon on just the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> it is it is in it is amazing the depth they go into. Yes. So commenting on the topic of the government UFO report itself, Ernest wrote on Facebook, great episode. Well done as usual. Thanks so much for all the work that goes into producing such informative and entertaining listening. Thank you very much, Ernest. Uh, And then Michael wrote on Facebook, thanks for the review of the government report. It helped me get through the clutter. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of the reporting you're going to see on something like this or anything in general is is going to be cluttered. The the news media is not really good at a lot at well the news media is not really good at its job and <laughs> especially when it comes to something like this uh then todd wrote on facebook out of all the analysis of i've i have heard about the report this is the best thank you looking at things and analyzing them at some length rather than just doing it all in sound bites is really what we try to do here uh, s madrano wrote on youtube i would like to see jimmy aiken interview luis elizondo Yeah, so uh, I'm planning on doing more interviews as part of Mysterious World in the future. We did that recently with Paul Smith, uh, the former government psychic spy and remote viewer. It went really well, and I plan to do more interviews with people in the future. I'm not sure. In fact, we have an episode coming up in September, which will involve that. And Luis Elizondo, or Lou Elizondo, as he's known, is on my list of people I'd like to interview. Oh, Lou Elizondo, by the way, is the former head of the Defense Department ATIP Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Study Program. Sisir Katampudi writes on YouTube, are you guys going to do video versions of your podcast regularly? By the way, Jimmy Akin's a global treasure. I like how he has firm foundations and yet is so open-minded and carefully and honestly considers evidence. It inculcates trust in what he has to say. Thank you so much, Cecil. Yeah, I I try to just be open-minded, and I think as a result of that open-mindedness, people will, you know, take the analysis in a way that increases confidence. In terms of doing video, we're I'm hoping that we will be able to transition to using video on a regular basis, but it's a learning process, and we have to get various things in place. to enable that to happen. Uh, But we are continuing to experiment and to work towards that. And thank you, everybody, for your feedback. We love getting your feedback. So let's move to our mysterious headlines. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? Well, this week we have an astronomy theme. So we're going to be talking about two different kinds of stars. The first one, anti-stars. That is stars made of antimatter. For some reason that physicists do not understand, we don't have a lot of antimatter in our universe. They think that a lot of it was created in equal amount to matter at the Big Bang, but then for some reason, almost all of the antimatter got eliminated in a, in a big explosion, and there was a collision between the matter and the antimatter, and most of the antimatter did not survive. Why there would be such an asymmetrical thing happening they don't know but there's a question of how much natural antimatter has survived and until now people have thought well probably not enough to make like stars and things like that but there are some signals that astronomers have detected that could indicate a number of antimatter stars in our galaxy so uh, check out that link link and also check out larry niven's famous story flatlander where he envisions such a possibility. Second story this time is about nuclear, quote-unquote, snowflakes that may cause white dwarf stars to turn into natural atomic bombs. 
So if you want to learn about how nuclear snowflakes may cause white dwarf stars to turn into natural atomic bombs, check out the link. Awesome. So that's uh, that's going to be it from us. We'd love to hear your theories about Paul Amadeus Dinoch and his visions of the future. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week is a patron's question show, so we'll be talking about things like the Uncanny Valley, Terminal Lucidity, Mothman, Chupacabras, Reiki, Yoga, CIA manipulation of the news media, dream interpretation, astral projection, and more. Excellent. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review of the podcast and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com secrets.